you pray with me, please? Father, our um, counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists tell us that three of the most difficult words for human beings to say are, I need you. Father, we need you desperately because life is hard much of the time. Father, I know that there are many here today that need to hear what you have to say to us this morning, beginning with me. So I pray, Father, that you would even now send your angels to form a ring, a hedge of protection around this place for the next little while and to keep the distractions of life out, to keep the devil and his minions from getting in the way of us seeing the clear, bright light of Your Word and hearing the clear, sweet sound of Your voice. Father, I ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Last week... You recall, we set off. We set off with Paul and Silas from Antioch on Paul's second missionary journey. And we followed those two men to Lystra. And by the way, I forgot to tell you last week or to teach you last week if you live in Lystra, what are you called? A Listerine. Okay, now. See, if you didn't like that, you best leave now. It's all downhill from here. Okay? We followed Paul and Silas to Lystra where Paul recruited a young disciple, a momser of mixed Jewish and Greek heritage named Timothy, remember? And in addition to adding Timothy to the team, the the first leg of Mission 2 is summarized in Luke twice in a short span, Acts 15.41 and 16.5. Paul and Silas and then Timothy, Luke tells us, strengthened the churches that Paul had previously established. And now this morning, we'll see how Luke transitions us, really, from the first to the second and final leg, the biggest leg, longest leg of Mission 2, where Paul now takes Christianity to brand new horizons. They go to establish churches in places that Paul hasn't been yet. Phase 1 of Mission 2, strengthen what God has already done, Phase two, expand the gospel of Jesus Christ to new horizons. A terrific missions model for today, by the way. Let's read Acts 16 together. I'm beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Macedonia is Alexander the Great's home kingdom. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, 
Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. This is the first of four different we sections in Acts. We haven't seen we before from the author. Most scholars agree that this is where Luke joined in, where he was with them. So he starts saying we as the writer. Makes sense, doesn't it? After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Again, interesting tangent in a very short space. Isn't it interesting that Luke has Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God giving guidance to Paul and his companions? Indeed, it's one of the very earliest attestations and affirmations of what Christians, what we call the Trinity. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. These are the very words of God. Amen? Now, at first glance, this passage might seem little more than something called a travel narrative. I'll bet some of you were even surprised I stopped reading there yet, that we haven't gotten anything yet. And it certainly serves the purpose to simply get Paul and his friends from one place to another. But is there more there, perhaps? One commentator I looked at on this passage, I flipped open his commentary. He introduced it this way, almost made me put it down. The commentator said, This passage does not have any explicitly stated principles that can be unmistakably affirmed for today. <laughs> I kind of looked at the book. Did I pick up the wrong one? I first read that, I thought, wait a minute. See, I read something like that, it becomes a challenge for me to dig and discover what God indeed is trying to say to us in that scripture today. Fortunately, I didn't stop reading, because the same commentator immediately adds, but, but there are many human experiences in this passage with which we can identify and through which we see God at work. Therefore, this passage is instructive to us as we learn how to fight the good fight of faith. Well, now that's more like it, I thought. What can we find here? Yes, even in a travel narrative that is indeed helpful as we travel in our lives from place to place. It seems clear enough from our passage that Paul initially is, he, he heads to the province of Asia. Probably knowing Paul, making a beeline to its capital, a city you know as Ephesus. But as he travels in Asia or on his way to Asia, a rather curious thing happens. Did you notice? The Holy Spirit says, don't. Asia isn't the next new horizon. So Paul changes course and, and heads north toward Bithynia. Now, see, I throw these things. Turkey is huge. You know, we hear we, we head over to wherever. We head over to, we get in our car, we get in a plane, and as inconvenient as it, these guys are walking hundreds of miles. Paul changes course, heads north toward Bithynia. They get to the border of Bithynia, all the way to the border, and when they try to cross it, this same curious thing happens. Did you notice? 
the Spirit of Jesus, probably the Holy Spirit, again says, don't. Not Bithynia. Now, put on your Paul hats for just a minute with me this morning, okay? If you're Paul, aren't you the least bit frustrated here? I mean, you walk all the way toward Asia. Stop! Okay. All right, how about Bithynia? Must be good. Okay, walk all the way to Bithynia. You get to the border. Stop! Okay. I mean, at what point are you tempted at least to bend God's ear a little bit? Here we go. No, you don't. Okay, well, here we go. No, you don't. Okay, time out, God. I have an idea. How about I just sit here on this rock until you tell me exactly where it is you want me to go and while you're at it, exactly it is what you want me to do when I get there. How about we do that? Okay, I, I've been walking over hill and under dale. Who is dale? And what's a dale anyway and why do we walk under it? Is the dale a valley? Nobody knows. I think it's a valley, but don't you walk through a bit? Never mind. I've been walking all over, and if you don't want me to go to Asia, if you don't want me to go to Bithynia, <laughs> say so. How about telling me before I walk all the way over there? Okay. You know, after the Bithynia, don't go there. I picture Paul. All right. I picture Paul from there on making, taking extremely slow steps to anywhere he goes. Just to give God every available opportunity to say, don't go there before he gets there. Right? So if these candles over here are Troas, because that's where Paul heads next, you know, after the Bithynia thing, you know, don't go into Bithynia. Gets a good night's sleep, gets back up, and he just kind of, he knows he wants to go to Troas, but. Right? And God doesn't tell him not to go there. Have, um, have you ever been there with God? Not in Bithynia. Have you ever been there in your life as, as you try and follow where He wants you to go and do what He wants you to do? Have you ever been there with God? If you haven't, just live a little longer and you will. I suspect you'll get to that place eventually in your life with God where you just quite don't get all the time the way that He leads you. God's way of leading us often seems to us at least very inefficient, doesn't it? God's way of leading us so often seems to us very unexpected, inefficient, and it so often seems to us downright unreasonable sometimes, doesn't it? Have you ever been there with God? Can I get a little honest amen this morning? Okay. And one more observation. God's way of leading, off, leading us often seems to us, doesn't it, to, to involve needless pain and suffering. Doesn't it? Have you noticed? 
Have you ever been there with God? That could be God calling. If it is, I'll take it. They say things like that because it will be the last time that they bring the cell phone in here. Right? Just kidding. Maybe you're like me. Just reading verses like the one we just read in Acts makes me more than a little impatient. Right? You kind of read through there. It's like, well, when are we going to get to something that... I think things like, you know, if I was in charge of this thing, it would be different. I would have given Paul a detailed 12-point font Arian itinerary in Antioch about where he's going to go and what he has to do. All of this blundering about, telling Paul to go somewhere else only after he's gone the wrong way. What an incredible waste of time and resources. And why keep this poor man in the dark? Who's in charge here anyway? Well, God is in charge. And only God knows why Paul needs to find his way by trial and error so often in his life and ministry. And so too with us. Fortunately for the early church, Paul's not me. Look at Paul here. There's not even a hint of impatience. Paul trusts that God has a reason for these curious changes of direction, and Paul trusts that God knows what he's doing. He continues here and throughout his ministry, does Paul, with one possible exception near the end of his life. And we'll talk about that someday in the future. But Paul continues here and throughout almost all of his ministry, whenever something unexpected or inefficient or unreasonable and even painful comes along, the man rolls with it with such grace and kindness and gentleness and energy. It's really astounding. And at every odd turn... Through every annoying, painful experience, Paul says he gets back and he's, okay, let's try again. At every turn. How about us? Do we do that? Do we trust God like that with the same grace and gentleness and energy of the Apostle Paul? Do we trust that God knows what He's doing when things become unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and even painful? There's a word that describes for us what it's like sometimes to live in a fallen world. And it's a word that carries great theological and biblical weight. The word is chaos. Life is chaotic at times, isn't it? And you know, If you're the mother of newborn triplets here this morning, your response is, yes, every waking moment of every day. But you don't have to be the mother of triplets to feel the chaos of life, do you? Webster's defines chaos as a state of things in which chance is supreme. Especially the confused, unorganized state of primordial matter before the creation of distinct forms. Chaos is the inherent unpredictability in the behavior of complex natural systems like the atmosphere, boiling water, or the beating heart. Chaos is a state of utter confusion. 
And that's what it feels like to us sometimes, doesn't it? At least when things in life, things happen in life that are unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, or painful. It feels unorganized, unpredictable, confused. And what do we do when we find ourselves seemingly surrounded by chaos? Well, what does God do? What did He do? Once upon a time, you may recall, there was nothing but chaos in the universe. Do you remember? Everything, Genesis tells us, was formless and empty. It was dark and there was nothing but deep waters. In a word, the epitome of chaos. But then, the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos. God spoke. And God brought order from chaos. That's what God does. When surrounded by chaos, He brings it to order. God creates in the chaos. What an amazing God we serve. And the long and short of it is, will we create and bring order out of chaos when chaos surrounds us? Or will we lash out in bitterness and angerness? Angerness? Anger. Anger. Not necessarily at others around us, but at the chaos. But the others around us take the hit. My fr- we've stumbled upon one huge mark of the church, in my opinion. One striking characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We create order out of the chaos surrounding us. Or in other words, in the words of a common expression, if given lemons, Christians of all people make lemonade. So help us, God. As Christians, whenever life gets chaotic, God asks us to avoid the temptation to recoil and shut down or lash out in anger. God instead asks us, lean into that chaos and create and bring order out of it. God asks us to excel despite chaotic circumstances that are bent on keeping us from achieving anything honoring to God. And oh, The power of that witness, the power of that life, being God's instrument of order in the chaos. I'll never forget when Jill and I bought our first gas grill from Sears. It was a big day. Never had our own grill before. It came in this big box. I'll never forget, it cleared out the garage, a little blue house. Pulled all the cars out of the garage, nothing in the garage but the big box in the middle on a white sheet. And put this together. Opened the box, and oh my goodness, I thought someone made a mistake. They sent us a bomb. This is a big old thing, you know. There must be a million parts. Okay, how many have, like, you know, had the thrill of putting your grill together? Just like a million parts to a grill, right? And there's a hundred left over when you're done. You know, and then there's an instruction book. This thick in 29 languages. But you know, for guys at least, stereotypically, a little bit of the, you know, the, the comic Tim Allen comes out in us when we peer into such a box. Oh, yeah, yeah. I will now bring order from the chaos in this box. 
because I am a man. Oh, yeah. Right? And guys, we like to have our wives come and watch too, right? As long as they don't try to help. What are you doing with that? I put that. Don't put. As long as they don't say, say anything. Just watch us. Watch me, woman, bring order from chaotic box. And you know, we do, we do, men and women, we, we do a fairly decent job creating in chaos when we have detailed instructions to follow. We do a fairly decent job if we know before diving into that box, literally or metaphorically, if we know, okay, if I'm going in there, at least I've got some confidence, I've got a reasonable chance of success. And we do pretty good when we feel like we have a reasonable... If I follow these 479 steps, chances are at the end of this, I will have a gas grill. And that emboldens us. And so we'll dive into the chaos when we've got a reasonable chance of success. And God help the manufacturer retailer, right, gentlemen, when we follow the instructions to the letter and it doesn't work. You fire up the grill and it torches off all the hair above the waist. Boy, that makes us mad, doesn't it? Follow the, le- the letter of the instructions and life still blows up in your face. We do everything we're supposed to and life is still unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and painful. Who's in charge here? And maybe life is even hairless. You ever feel that way? We do all right with instructions, but what happens when the instructions aren't detailed enough to suit us? Or when we don't have instructions for the specific chaotic circumstance facing us right now? What then? How do we respond? Do we even respond at all or do we shut down entirely? Speaking of chaotic circumstances, I coach a third-grade boys' basketball team. Pray for me. This past Friday night, we played the undefeated first-place team in our league. And we had them down 8-2 to two at halftime. Yes, these are high-scoring affairs. Okay. And after the third quarter, it was still tied at 8-8. Eight to eight. And then the fourth quarter happened. And we lost 19-8. And we lost two to three years off my life. And adding insult to injury, some kid on the other team heaved, not shot, heaved in a three-point prayer at the buzzer. (laughs) But I'm okay. I'm over it. Can you tell? (laughs) Anyway, we have one offensive play. 
one. And in nine games so far, as God is my witness, my boys, may God bless their tender hearts, my boys have not yet run the play once. Not once. They practice it and practice. Oh, bless you. Do that in a game, okay? And every time, they nod their dear little faces bobbing up and down. And they assure me time and time again, my dear man, we got it. Today, we will run the play. Coach, worry no longer. And then the game starts. And for the next 32 minutes... These blessed children run around more or less like their hair is on fire from the grill. And you would swear. Well, you might swear, but you... And you would swear they never once ever even heard of the concept of running an organized play. And then I feel the, my, my parents of the boys on the side looking at me. Nice offense, coach. How do you do as your practices? Why don't you have our future NBA stars running a play? And it's at these moments on the sidelines, watching these little ones run around like they are absolutely clueless, it occurs to me, in fact, it occurred to me during this game Friday night. I, I, of course, I had the sermon on my heart and mind even in the middle of it. But it occurs to me as I'm, I'm watching these kids, just the word chaos came to mind. What's this is chaos? And my next thought was, oh, that's a good illustration. Right there. <laughs> you know what else I wondered? Seriously, see after when I was reflecting on it. I wonder I wonder if that's a little of what it's like for God watching me. Watching all of us live our lives. God gives us the instructions. Here's how to live life. Now go for it. And then we go all over and on. What happens to those young basketball players? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Suddenly there are defenders out there bent on their destruction. There are defenders out there bent on causing them chaos. I mean, our team would be great if there wasn't any opponent out there. Chaos is what happens to those young men. And the play gets lost. In, seriously, you come watch one of our games. The play gets lost in like the struggle for survival. Is life like that sometimes? And part of becoming a better basketball player is learning how to continue to create in that chaos. Even when the game gets unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and yes, 
even painful. What happens in your life when, when the play, the plan, the expectation gets lost in chaos? When life becomes unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and painful? Well, it's in those very circumstances of life that God asks us with His help and those around us to create in that chaos. We see evidence of this very early on in the history of humanity. Right after God calls order out of the chaos, the serpent shows up bent on causing chaos, re-entering chaos into God's order. And Adam and Eve bite figuratively on the snake's lie and literally on the forbidden fruit. And look with me at Adam in particular. Eve gets all the bad press, so let's give Adam his share. Right, ladies? Amen. Genesis 3, verse 6 tells us that Adam is with Eve, something that is often overlooked. And so there he sits. Adam means man. Adam is man. So there sits Mr. Man. He has his clear instructions from God. Don't eat that fruit. And yet, there he sits. Watching. There's Eve, chatting away with the snake. I'll get email on that, won't I, later? Slowly being convinced. I mean, that dialogue's drawn out a bit, you notice? I wonder if it's there. How many opportunities, Adam, did you have to inject yourself into there? There's Eve chatting away with the snake, slowly being convinced that God's plan of not eating the fruit is unreasonable and inefficient. And Adam doesn't say a word, not one word. He just sits there. Husbands, I have some strong advice for you this morning. If you ever come across your wife talking to a snake, do something. Or at least say something. And of course it's metaphorical. If you ever see your beloved, your one flesh partner, Slowly drifting towards sin or being tempted to disobey God. For the love of God, say something, will you please? Honey, don't. Honey, let's talk about this. Honey, don't listen to them. Honey, let's just you and me get out of here. I don't know what exactly, but say something. Protect her, you protectors. Why didn't Adam say anything, do you suppose? Here's a possible explanation. He's faced with chaos. Men in particular, we don't like chaos. This was unexpected. To our knowledge, God never said anything to Adam about a talking snake that would show up someday and lie to them. He didn't. And when surrounded by the chaos, he doesn't have a manual. Troubleshooting. Snake shows up, lies to wife. Say something. Even if he had that, he would have been, say what? What should I say? And while he's thinking about that, Eve says, here, take a bite. Oh, sure. 
And when surrounded by this chaos, Adam locks up, he shuts down, he stops creating, he goes silent, and he just goes along. He fails to live up to the fact that he's made in the very image of God, which means in part, in my opinion, he fails to see chaos as an opportunity to bring God's order. Mr. Man just sits there. Over the Atlantic Ocean in October of 1991, a dying tropical hurricane came up from Bermuda, and it collided with a cold front from the Great Lakes. The movie, The Perfect Storm, is based on the true story of how the Andrea Gale, a small ship, and her crew fought for their lives in the middle of this phenomenal weather pattern that produced a hundred foot waves at sea, a hundred feet, and caused all sorts of damage on the land. It was sheer chaos for the Andrea Gale and her crew. Maybe this will give you a piece of what chaos can be like.
place to stop, huh? I asked John to stop it right there. Your life ever feel like the Andrea Gill? Mine too. When the perfect storm wells up around you in life, when life turns unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and painful, what will you do? A couple of examples, and then we'll close. Husbands out there, again. Boy, I'm picking on you today. Sorry. I'm one too. The next time you come home and go upstairs and you find your wife sitting on the edge of your bed weeping because of something you've said or done or because she's frustrated with you and your marriage, what will you do? Suddenly the married men, the married men are shifting in their seats now this morning throughout the room, right? Pretty chaotic situation for us men. Will you try your best to create in that chaos, guys? Will you engage and go there with her? Try your best to empathize. Will you work hard on your marriage? Harder even than you work on your job? Will you create in this chaos? Or will you turn and leave her there? Or bark out something harsh or critical? Or revel in some sort of self-pity because you're never good enough and how dare her be disappointed with you and your marriage again after all you've done for her or something like that? Gentlemen, will you instead love your wife and choose to create in her chaos? I have in my life so many examples of people I know who encourage me to create in chaos. I hope you do too. It's what church is for, you know. Little girls are not supposed to get cancer. But when theirs did, John and Julie Burns created in the chaos. Brothers are not supposed to die so young. But when theirs did, the Bradys continued creating in the chaos. Kids aren't supposed to get shot up in schools. But when the Bernals lost a daughter, they continued to create in the chaos. Young, healthy men aren't supposed to have reoccurring chronic pain in their joints. But when that happened to my brother-in-law, David created in the chaos. What's happened in your life that wasn't supposed to? That wasn't according to your plan or expectations? Do you see that as an opportunity to create in the chaos? That's hard, I know. And there's 
No chance at it without God's help. Because with God's help, directly and indirectly through others, that's church, folks. It's a huge part of why we're here. With help from God and others, you too can find the ability to create in the chaos that surrounds you. Paul did with help from God and his community around him. I'll bet that's one of the huge reasons why God gave him his team. And a lot of it comes down to that. It comes down to whether chaos strikes you as a hopeless mess or a hopeful opportunity to help bring order. Now, quick check. Was that unexpected? Is that horribly inefficient? Unreasonable? I worried that the deck wouldn't come apart and hit someone and it would become painful. <laughs> Your immediate reaction to something like that, ugh, what a mess. Or, here's an opportunity to help create order out of that chaos. I want to show you something. No, no, I'm serious. Look at them. What do they immediately do? Get the cards! And if you weren't here, they would have went and got those too. I'm not kidding. Okay, it's just an illustration. And an imperfect one at that. Isn't it fascinating? I come down here, nobody moves. Chaos. And still, still, nobody has moved to help pick up these cars. I got all day. Just going to leave them lay there? <laughs> You guys, you're just going to leave them lay there? Okay, silly illustration. And you know what? Some of you didn't move out of respect for me and you didn't want to interrupt, and I thank you for that graciousness. But I want you to feel a little bit when you first saw those cards blow up. That is our human... That's our human reaction to chaos. See, and sometimes we behave like our kids, right? When we try to discipline our kids. We say, you know, why don't you... We try to get them to do little things to prepare them for the bigger things in life, right? And I don't know about you, but my kids, the students I teach a lot of times, 
Well, you know, when it really matters, then... And maybe some of you thought that. Well, he's not really in trouble. It's just cards. If he really needed help, then I... Really? You sure? If we can't do the simple, silly, how are we going to do it when our life literally might be on the line to help someone else? May God find us a community of hope that sees chaos as an opportunity to bring order in Jesus' name. When the cards of life spill all over in unexpected, inefficient, unreasonable, and even painful ways, may we be a community of faith that creates in chaos, and not only in our own chaos, but also even especially in the chaos of others. It's what the Apostle Paul did. And you know what? It's exactly what Jesus did when facing the ultimate chaos of death and hell. He created big time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we desperately need you break through our false pride that suggests to us we don't. And Father, when chaos hits in our lives, please, Father, give us the strength, the courage, the discernment, the attitude, the fortitude, the humility, Give us the faith and the trust that even in the worst imaginable circumstance in life on planet Earth, the trust that we know, nevertheless, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you love us deeply and that you will never let us go and that you are there with us in the circumstance. You promised, Father, Please keep your promise and give us the assurance that you're there. And help us, Father, in your name, in Jesus' name, to bring order in the chaos of the world, that all the world may know that you are God and that salvation is for those in Jesus Christ alone. We love you. Thank you for this time together around your word this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a good Martin Luther King Day. And we'll see you in a week. God bless you. If you'd like to pray, as always, someone will be eager to pray for you and with you. Come on up.